make a recommendation of something and then forget you made it and wonder why the choir is still sitting there. I was thinking that as they thought we were going to sing again. I wasn't sure. I remember they're staying up there today. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. Celebration of He is risen, He is risen indeed. As we have spoke about, and as we have sung about, and as we think about today. You know, the truth of the matter is, it's a strange thing to the, to the carnal mind, to the human mind, to the average mind. It's a strange thought that Jesus or anybody came back from the dead. I mean, let's face it, in our day, in our scientific world, when a person is dead, we really expect them to stay that way, don't we? We don't expect people to come back to life that have died. When they die, they die. We don't see them again on this earth. And yet, Christians have this belief, and I believe an important belief, indeed a significant belief, indeed an undeniable belief that Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave, that he rose from the dead. Now, what do we mean when we say Jesus is alive? We believe that Jesus is alive. What do we mean when we say that? We, we say that we believe a lot of things, don't we? I, I could ask you this morning, we could have a show of hands, how many of you believe that blue is a more superior color to red? And probably many of you would raise your hands. Some of you wouldn't, but many of you would. Uh, or I could ask you, do you really believe that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. Most of us would raise our hand and say, yes, we believe that, we believe that he was. We weren't there. We, we didn't actually see him standing on the Capitol steps being sworn in. We didn't actually live during his administration long before we were ever born. But yes, we believe that Jesus, uh, excuse me, that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. Well, in thinking about that, we, we believe both of those things one way or the other, either that blue is superior to red or red is superior to blue, and that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. But there's a great difference in those two types of belief. The first is really a matter of preference, whether you admit it or not. It's a matter of taste. I like blue better than I like red, or I like red better than I like blue. There's no eternal significance whether you believe that or not, there's no eternal significance in which one is more preferable. One is, it's just a matter of taste. It's just a matter of what you like and what you think is best. But there's no real importance attached to that. Even with Abraham Lincoln, the fact that he was a, a, the 16th president of the United States is not a matter of taste. It's not, oh, I, I think I like the idea that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. It's a matter of fact. I mean, you can look at all the history books. You can go and look it up on the Internet, and, and you won't find, I don't think anywhere, where somebody says, oh, no, Abraham Lincoln really never existed. He really wasn't the 16th president of the United States. He was. That is a fact. But I doubt very seriously if, if every day you wake up every morning thinking, wow, it's just so important to me 
that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. I, I stake my whole life on the fact that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. I doubt any of you in your right mind woke up this morning and thought, man, the most important thing to me this morning is that everybody that I go to church with this morning and everybody in Somerset, Kentucky and beyond, it's important to me that they believe that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. It's a fact. It's true. And by virtue of that, it's important, but it's not all that significant for your daily living. The resurrection of Christ is not that way. I doubt that this week you'll have anybody trying to convince you that, that uh, Abraham Lincoln wasn't the 16th president of the United States. You may have some people trying to convince you that blue is better than red or vice versa, but, but that's a matter of taste. I doubt you'll have anybody saying, but I really want you to see that Abraham Lincoln really wasn't the 16th president of the United States. That's a settled fact for the most part. But you will run into people every day. If you dare share that I believe that Jesus Christ came forth out of the grave, Jesus Christ is alive, Jesus Christ resurrected after hanging on a cross and dying there, I believe with all my heart that that Jesus is alive today, you will have people who will look at you rather strange in our secular world and in our scientific age and say, I just don't get it. Why is that so important? Why is it so important that a first century Jew an itinerant preacher, someone who was, yes, indeed killed, placed on a cross, as many, many others were in that day. Why is it so significant that he came forth from the grave? Well, it was so significant that even right after it happened, many people started trying to deny it. When the Roman soldiers went back to the, the, the uh, religious leaders, as Ricky read about just a few minutes ago, they went back to religious leaders and they said, listen, let me tell you what happened last night. The earth shook. The, 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 the thing got very scary and we, we literally passed out from fear and we woke up. The stone was rolled away. This huge stone was rolled away from the grave and Jesus of Nazareth, that one we crucified, was not there any longer. And they, scared, they were scared for their lives. They weren't about to run back to Pilate. They weren't about to run back to the Roman authorities because they knew that the penalty for a Roman soldier passing out or falling asleep or failing in a guard like that where the Roman seal had been set was immediate death. So they went to the religious leaders. And they said, listen, here's what happened last night. And the religious leaders thought about it, pondered it, and said, listen, okay, here's the deal. Here's some money. Isn't it funny how money is always the solution to everything in the world's eyes? Here's some money. Take this money and, and go on your way. And listen, we'll talk to the governor about it. And when it comes to his ears, we'll smooth things over. We'll make things right. You don't have to worry about it. Just take this money and go out and tell everybody that while you were asleep, the disciples snuck in, stole the body, and took it somewhere. That's all you got to do. Although death was the penalty for sleeping on a guard. But it was so significant to those Jewish leaders, so important to those Jewish leaders that no one believed in the resurrection of Christ, that no one really think that he came forth out of the grave, that they were willing to pay a large sum of money to those soldiers to go and, in essence, not in essence, in reality, in fact, tell a lie about where Jesus was. 
and about what had happened on the night before His resurrection. We know a lot of reasons why we believe in the resurrection, the stone, the empty tomb, the grave clothes, all these things we looked at this past Wednesday night in our study as we talked about the, the evidences for the resurrection of Christ. We, we know about all those things. We also know that he appeared to the Apostle Paul, who at that point was Saul of Tarsus, who was an enemy of the church, who hated the church, on his way to Damascus. The risen Christ appeared to him and called him as an apostle. We, we know all that to be fact. And so we know that when, when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthian Christians, there are some there, no doubt, who are saying, listen, people don't raise from the dead. We, we realize this idea of, of, of Christianity is sort of based on that, but, but we're struggling with that because we've not seen anybody else raised from the dead. And so Paul writes to them and talks about the importance of it and the significance of it. I remember reading when I was in seminary one particular German theologian who in his attempt to say the, the resurrection was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical, literal resurrection, said it was something like this. Uh, he said, you know, what happened was the disciples were gathered together and they were talking about Jesus and they were recounting all the great times with Jesus and everything was so exciting and they were, they were reminiscing on how great it was when Jesus was here walking on the earth that, that one of the disciples said, oh, we're remembering all this stuff and isn't it just almost like Jesus is here among us as we remember these things? And from that they built the whole scenario that, well, maybe if we go out and tell people he raised from the dead... We can get some people to believe that, and, and it, it's a lie. It's really just something we feel, but, but if we can tell people that, maybe they'll believe it's true, and, and we can start a church. Those apostles had no intention of starting a church. They went back to their fishing nets. They thought it was all over. They thought everything they'd staked their lives on and given themselves to for all this time was now finished with those words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. So Paul, the apostle, writing to the Corinthian Christians, makes this statement. Hear what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. I wish we could read the whole chapter. We can't because of time restraints, but I want you to hear the essence of what Paul is saying. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren... The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand. In other words, I preached this gospel to you, and you believed it. By which you also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins." according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It's an important, significant phrase. He was crucified. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures. He's not talking about the gospels, folks. He's not talking about what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say about the resurrection of Christ. That hadn't been assembled yet as the scriptures. When he talks about according to the scriptures, he's talking about what the Old Testament prophets 
prophesied of, which we read of out of Isaiah a bit this morning. The prophets spoke of his resurrection. The prophets spoke of his death and his sacrificial death, which I read this morning from Isaiah as our call to worship. He was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities on that cross, according to the Scriptures. And he appeared, verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, even Thomas, who doubted and said, I won't believe it unless I see his nail prints. And I, I, I feel the, 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 the spear, spear wound in his side. I won't believe. But he appeared and he saw him and he fell down and he said, My Lord and my God. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brethren. 500. Not a mass hallucination but a real appearance of the risen Christ to 500 people. 500 people just don't have mass hallucinations. He appeared to 500 people. But here's a key for, for Paul anyway. He said, and, and some remain until now, most of whom remain until now. Most of them are still living. Basically saying, if you don't believe me, go back into Jerusalem and just ask around. You'll find many people who say, I saw the risen Christ. Go back and ask them. Go back and see. Then he appeared to James. James, the brother of Jesus. James, the the half-brother of Jesus, shared the same mother, Mary. Different fathers because the Holy Spirit was Jesus' father. Joseph was Mary's father, or was, was James' father. But they shared the same mother, James. Do you remember the stories in the Gospels about James and his brothers and Jesus' brothers and sisters and what they thought about Jesus? They thought he'd gone nuts. They thought, here's our brother going around saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Who is our, he's our brother for crying out loud. We grew up with him. They saw him saying, listen, I am, the, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger. I am the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. I mean, James looked at Jesus and said, who does he think he is? At one point, they wanted to just kind of ease him off the scene and put him away somewhere. And then after the resurrection, he appears to James. Can you imagine what James must have thought? James who knew that they had crucified his brother, his half-brother. James who knew that he had died and been buried in a tomb. James, the one who did not believe pre-resurrection that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, and now he appears to James. And James sees him, and James believes, and James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to five hundred, more than five hundred, at one time. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the, the other apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and, and not fit to be called an apostle. Don't you love that humility? I, I'm the least of all apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle. Why are you not fit for that, Paul? Because I persecuted the church of God. 
I sought to kill him. I I held the, the coats of the men who stoned Stephen and put him to death for his preaching the gospel of Christ. I watched and I gave my my, my approval to that. And then on the road to Damascus, when I did see the Lord, I was on my way to arrest people for no other reason than being a Christian. Still happens in our day, by the way. Pastor Saeed is in prison in Iran for no other crime than believing the gospel and preaching the gospel. Still happens in our day. Not happening in the United States yet but still happening in our world. Paul said, I was persecuting the church. I desired to destroy the church of God. I thought I was doing God's work because I was a good Pharisee. And I thought that this, this cult, this sect that said Jesus Christ was the Messiah, Jesus Christ was God incarnate, Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I I thought they were against Moses and against the truth of God, and I thought I was doing God's work, and I set out to destroy them, but I realized I was seeking to destroy the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that phrase. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul, persecutor of the church. Paul, Pharisee. Paul, legalist. Paul, one who wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ, but when he met him face to face, changed his life, and he believed. Not because he was looking for Christ, not because he was seeking Christ, not because he thought he could find a better, happier life in Christ, but he wanted to destroy any mention of Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not not worthy to be an apostle, the least of the apostles, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen, that's not only true for the apostle Paul, that is true for you and me. It is by the grace of God that we are what we are, disciples of Christ, saints of His, His, His on this earth, those who are adopted in the family of God. By His grace, we are what we are. If not for His grace, we would be hopeless and helpless and lost. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, useless, powerless. It didn't prove useless or powerless or vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, whether it was me or Peter or me or James or me or any of the other apostles, doesn't matter. We we preach and you believed. We preach and you believed. I mean, Paul is saying, listen, I want you to understand, there is absolute, complete, total, irrefutable evidence that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. It's not a matter of taste. It's not a matter of, oh, I really like to think that Jesus raised from the dead. It gives me warm feelings when I think that. It's not that at all. It's not that, oh, oh I, just, I just like to sit around and think about how it would have been, how it must have been, and maybe Jesus raised from the dead, and, and that's a good feeling. That's not it at all. 
It's more in line with the fact that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. But it's far, 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 infinitely more important and significant than that Lincoln was president of the United States, 16th or otherwise. Paul said, I want you to understand, there is a line of evidence that is clear, and he accounts it there, appearing to these ones and appearing to more than 500. He said, the evidence is there. Now, you can believe the lie of the soldiers if you want to, You can believe the lie of secularists that say dead people don't come back to life. Or you can believe what is an irrefutable truth. I I shared Wednesday night about a book entitled The Testimony of the Evangelist in Light of the Rules of Evidentiary Evidence. It's written by a guy named Simon Greenleaf, written in the 1800s. Simon Greenleaf was a professor of law at Harvard University, one of the most renowned professors of law that our country has ever seen. As a matter of fact, some places his textbook on evidence of, in the courtroom is still used to teach law, and at least his principles are, even in other textbooks. He was an agnostic. He said, there's no way you can believe whether there's a God or not. And further than that, this idea about the resurrection of Christ, why, that's got to be a hoax. It's got to be that somebody stole that body. It's got to be that somebody made up that story. The the resurrection of Christ, it got to be a hoax. Some believers in his classroom in the mid-1800s said, Professor Greenleaf, your laws of evidentiary evidence are really good ways to pursue a case, aren't they? Oh, they're the best, he thought. Whether he said it or not, he thought they they were. They said, why don't you do this? Why don't you take the evidence that, that exists for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as presented in the Gospels and other sources, why don't you take the evidence that exists for the resurrection of Christ and apply to that evidence your rules of evidentiary evidence, of, of legal evidence? He said, I'll do that. And he set out on a task to, to make it to prove it to be true, uh, prove it to be false. And in the course of applying his laws of legal evidence to the resurrection of Christ, he wrote the book, The Testimony of the Evangelist, and made a statement in that book that evidence as such exists for the resurrection of Jesus Christ has never, ever broken down in a court of law. Frank Morrison wrote a book, Who Moved the Stone. Frank Morrison was much like Simon Greenleaf. He desired to to disprove the resurrection of Christ, to disprove that because he knew that if he could disprove the resurrection of Christ, Christianity would crumble. And so he set out to write a book. The first chapter of his book is entitled this, The Book That Refused to Be Written. The title of the book is, Who Moved the Stone? And the first chapter, the book that refused to be written. The reason he said that is, the reason he titled that is, because the book that he set out to write was to disprove the resurrection of Christ, and it wouldn't be written because everything he found was evidence to the resurrection of Christ. And in his book, he outlines it and breaks it down all the way through to show, again, that evidence for the resurrection of Christ far exceeds anything that a normal a normal document, a normal historical event would require. As a matter of fact, if 
F.F. Bruce, a great New Testament scholar, once said that if the New Testament, if the New Testament were secular documents, no one would question their validity. If they were, if they were secular documents, nobody would question. Why? Because they wouldn't have any real impact. They wouldn't, they wouldn't claim. They wouldn't claim a demand for allegiance over man's life. They, they wouldn't do that. They would just ignore it and say, well, it's sure it's true. But yet in our day, more and more, the validity of the Scriptures and the validity of the resurrection of Christ is questioned and denied and thought about. And, and Paul says, I want you to understand this. It is absolutely important. Why? Look at verse 12. He says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is foolish, in vain, is foolish, and your faith also is foolish, it is in vain. Moreover, We are even found to be false witnesses to God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. I contend to you this, this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant event of all human history. And it is the most important event of all human history. You say, wait a minute, Bill. How can it be more important than the cross? How can it be more important than the fact that Jesus went to the cross hung there in our place as our substitute, as our sacrifice, bore his sins upon his body, experienced the wrath of God that was due to us. He took it on himself, and he hung there to suffer our wrath of God on his own body. How can you say that the resurrection is more significant than that cross? Easy. Because if the resurrection did not happen, that cross was nothing. If the resurrection did not take place, that cross is totally insignificant. If the resurrection did not take place, there was no bearing of sin. There was no substitution. There was no sacrifice there. It was just one pitiful Jewish rabbi, itinerant preacher, one foolish prophet who went to his death preaching something that was not true. But it's not that. It's not that. The truth of the matter is the resurrection does all these things. It, 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 first of all, it validates Christ's claims. You see, when he said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and all those things, when he said all those things and he hung on the cross, they were either negated at that point or they will soon in three days be validated. But all those things have no meaning in just the cross. 
All those things have no meaning in just his crucifixion. Let me tell you, do you remember? Two other people died that day by crucifixion. And in, in, in Israel, in, in that day, hundreds and thousands died by crucifixion who were hated by the government and punished for the most severe crimes by the government. But in that cross, there is a promise. In that cross, there was a statement. In that cross, there was the truth that he was bearing our sin, but it was not validated until three days later. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is the one that he claimed to be. Paul wrote to the Roman Christians in Romans 1-4, he said, and in the cross he, de- he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he was, he was declared he was vindicated, he was validated to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Peter said in, in Acts chapter 2, in talking about the resurrection, validating Jesus' claims to be prophet, Lord, and Messiah, he said in Acts 2.36, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has declared him to be both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this one you put to death. Everything he claimed to be, everything he claimed and said, everything he promised is validated, is confirmed by the resurrection and the cross too. The cross also demonstrates the truth of the Christian faith. Paul says here, if he's not risen, your, your faith is vain. It's foolish. If, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is foolish. If Christ is not risen, I'm wasting my time here today, and so are you. Let's go out and eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And when we die, that's it. If there's no resurrection from the dead, not only in Christ, but also for us when he comes again. A lot of debate going around today whether what religion is right. If you don't believe me, watch television. Watch news shows. You can watch from the most liberal to the most conservative news shows. I'll let you figure out which ones those are. But in each and every one of them, there's this, this subtle discussion, this subtle debate. Well, aren't all religions the same? Aren't all religions valid? Aren't all religions on equal footing? Don't they all teach the same thing? Don't they all talk about the same thing? The uncategorical answer to that is no, they don't. The resurrection, the resurrection says, here is the truth. Buddha is still in his grave. Muhammad is still in his grave. Confucius, still in his grave. And Moses, still in his grave. And on and on and on you can go. But Jesus is alive. He is alive. He is, he is risen from the dead. And it demonstrates the truth of the Christian life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead settles the matter about which religion, which faith, which is true. Not just true, but as Francis Schaeffer said, is true truth. Ultimate truth. Absolute truth. That's the Christian faith. 
And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, except through me. If the resurrection hadn't taken place, that would be foolishness. But the resurrection says that is true. So it validates Jesus' claims. It it demonstrates the truth of the Christian faith. Thirdly, it, it provides everlasting life for the believer. It provides everlasting life for the believer. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the factual basis for everlasting life to those who believe in him. Jesus said in John 14, 19, he said, Because I live, you will live also. Because I raised from the dead, you too will live. There will be life. The everlasting life is based on his resurrection. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And we're going to face physical death. This body's decaying. And I realize that decay more and more every day. But because he's resurrected, because he's alive, I will live. He, he, he's the first of many. Paul writes later in this same book, you know, in, in, in verse 20, the next verse, he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all of those who are asleep, who fall asleep. He's the first of many. His resurrection is, is just the beginning. It's the, it's the prototype, if you will, of the resurrection of all believers. Twice Christ is referred to as the firstborn from the dead. In Colossians 1.18, Revelation 1.5, that means he's the first to have an, ex- an eternal resurrected body. But every believer will follow suit in that. John said in 1 John 3.2, he said, Beloved, we, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we shall be. We know that when He appears, that is in His second coming, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. It brings, it provides, the resurrection provides everlasting life to the believer. Fourthly, it provides comfort. It's a comforting fact. The realization that Christ has risen from the dead provides comfort to the believer. After writing to the church at Thessalonica, On the matter of the resurrection of Christ and the eventual resurrection of the believer, the Apostle Paul exhorted the church to comfort one another with these words. He said, death is swallowed up in in the later part in this verse, a chapter. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord, through His resurrection. There is comfort. Comfort one another with these words, the knowledge that life is not all there is that he brings. Matter of fact, he says, Paul says here, listen, if we are only comforted in this life by Christ, if it's only in this life that we, uh, we experience some comfort, then we are, we are to be pitied. We are to be pitied among all men. We are the most of all men to be pitied. God didn't just come, Christ didn't just come and die and raise to, to make you happy or to make you feel better or to give you a better life here. He came to give you comfort in this life and life everlasting in Him. 
which is really the fifth thing he gives us, and that's hope. It's hope. Even when the body's failing, even when circumstances are horrendous, even when it looks like the world around us is falling apart, even when we see just really outlandish things being done, and we think, how in the world can that be taking place? We have hope that Christ reigns because of the resurrection. It's all the hope we need. And in reality, it's all the hope that we have. There is no other hope. There's no other need. You know, one of the simplest prayers and earliest creeds of the church is, it was that Aramaic word, Maranatha. It just literally means, come quickly, Lord. The Lord is coming. And the church would share with one another, Maranatha. There's a hope that He's coming. There's a hope and certainty that Christ is coming. And that hope is all we have. It's all we need. Listen. What Paul is wanting us to see here is this that the resurrection of Christ is a historical event. But it is far more than simply a historical event. It is one. It did happen. There's all sorts of evidences to prove it. But in reality, you'll never believe it apart from the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to see it. That's why on this Easter morning, if you're here not a believer, my prayer is you say, Lord Jesus, open my eyes. God, I ask for you to illumine me. Open my eyes. Open my heart. I want to believe. You cry out to him for his grace. Cry out for him in hope. The resurrection is more than a historical event. It validates Christ's claims. It it proves the the truth of the Christian life. It provides the basis of eternal life. It gives comfort to the believer. And it offers genuine hope for the future. Future in eternity. Future beyond this body. Future beyond this world. You know, the fact of the matter is, this is something worth celebrating. This is something worth rejoicing in. This is something worth thinking on. I don't think a lot about Abraham Lincoln being the 16th president of the United States. Folks, this is something worthy of our attention, worthy of our thoughts, worthy of our belief, and worthy of our submission. Let me ask you this morning, have you submitted to the resurrected Christ? Are you waiting for something like Paul had on the Damascus Road? You know, a bolt of lightning, a bright light and thunder and a voice from heaven. Then, then you may be waiting a long time because that's not his modus operandi today. How would you know that God's working in your life? How would you know that God's dealing with you? There's one simple question I would ask you. Do you desire Christ? Not just do you desire forgiveness of sin, not just... Do you desire heaven instead of hell? All those are peripheral issues. The real heart of the issue is, do you desire Christ? Do you want Him? Do you want to know Him? Do you want to understand what the truth is, why the resurrection is so significant and so important? Do you desire Christ? And if you do, that's evidence that Christ is working in you. 
that's evidence that Christ is calling you to himself. Why do I know that? Because Paul said in Romans 3, no man of his own initiative seeks after God. No man of his own initiative wants Christ. And his call in your life is believe, trust, submit to the truth of the risen Savior. Will you pray with me? we pray, I love that Puritan prayer that we read responsively earlier, one, one particular phrase or verse. We were strangers, outcasts, slaves, and rebels. But Father, your cross has brought us near. Your cross has softened our hearts. Your cross has made us your children admitted us to your family, and has made us joint heirs with Christ. Oh, Father, that we may love you as you love us. We know that we can love you because you first loved us, and you love us infinitely greater than we'll ever be able to love you. But Lord, may it be our desire and our, our life's plea to love you as you love us. May we walk worthy of you, O oh Lord. Not because we are worthy, not because we can make ourselves worthy, but because you, by your grace and by your righteousness, has qualified us. That tomorrow when we go to work, and next week when we go back to school, may we reflect the image of Jesus Christ. Father, that is our prayer as believers. And Lord, I pray for any here who may not be believers. I pray your Holy Spirit will move in their heart right now. And Lord, draw them to yourself. Open their eyes. Give them a hunger for Christ, desire for Christ. This is my prayer in Jesus' name.